Petri Dish is a product of Petri Dish Media, all rights reserved. All characters during the show, such as Donatella Iglesias, Jimmy Coconuts, and Tyler Jerry are copywritten and are satirical. Any similarity to any persons living or dead is completely coincidental. Petri Dish is a science comedy podcast and should not be used as medical advice. Do not get medical advice from a podcast. These people are genetically XY, but they will have breasts and vaginas. Are you doing James T. Kirk? (laughs) (laughs) And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Science! Science! I know the human being and science can coexist peacefully. We're back on Petri Dish. I'm Nathan. I'm Sean. If you guys listened in last week, you know we just did a part one on sex, specifically on animal sex, on plants, yeast sex, all that crazy sex, and all the ways that sex on the biological level is a lot more fluid and complicated than you would initially think off the dichotomy of man and woman, Adam and Eve. Now we gotta take all that sexy knowledge and apply it where it really matters. Your sex. (laughs) What's up with human sexuality? How is human sexuality different than human gender? Are all humans split up into man and woman? Or is it actually a lot murkier, danker, like the bottom of a Portland donut shop? Yeah, so we'll start out talking about the genetics of human sexuality, but then I think we're going to inevitably run up against sort of this pop science. The sexy science question. Really, yeah, popular field called evolutionary psychology that starts to ask questions like, why are dudes into ladies with big butts or something like that? And so there's going to be an entire chunk of this episode where we dive into sort of the methodologies of evolutionary psychology, what it means, and sort of, you know, maybe a kind of critique of the field. When you see an article that says, did men evolve with makeup to be more beautiful for women? How good is that science? And how does that empirically play into the rest of the scientific world? Right, exactly. So I think we're all geared up this time around on Petri Dish. Human sex. Let's get into it. Let's talk about a subject that we actually spoke a little bit on in our first episode and also has bedeviled man ever since the Greeks first invented sexuality. (laughs) Sean... What is the difference between sex and gender? Yeah, you know, I think that this question is coming up a shitload right now. Donald right? Trump. This is all over 4chan and Jordan Reddit. Peter. Yeah, it's all on the, Twitter. All the crazies. Right. And also like podcasts like, like I mean, I keep on joking about Joe Rogan, but like there's a lot of pods and a lot of personalities right now who are debating or who assert that men are men, women are women. The genders are biological. But what you're telling me is that these terms and their bases are a lot more complicated. Well, I think that a really popular refrain right now is that gender is a social construct. 
And what that means is that when we say man or woman in a human context, normally there's a lot of extra things that kind of pop into your head in association with that word. But the things that pop into your head might be very different than the things that pop into an Indian person's head or into a Swedish person's head. When I say male to you, Nathan. I say woman. <laughs> in your head, you're like, all right. Male means I play uh, League of Legends a lot. You know, yeah. that's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah! Whereas a hundred years ago, that might have meant something really different because League of Legends did not exist yet. Right, okay. <laughs> and so there are all of these associations, actions, thoughts, feelings, professions, objects that are kind of hooked up to the idea of man and woman. And I think that man and woman are also things that we associate with sexes, Right. The male yeah. and female sexes that we've been talking about in the past episode. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with you on the basic premise that maybe gender is all the things that we socially construct around sex, but then they would say that sex is biologically determined. There is a clear divide between men and women. Right. And I think if we can agree on those terms, the next level is really digging into the idea, okay... If sex maybe is biologically determined, what is the actual biology in humans that determines that? And is it a dichotomy? Is it really only male and female? Right. Or are there other options? Mm -hmm. So that's where we dig into the XY chromosome stuff for people. That sounds like a 70s TV show. It's like, man, woman, Nathan. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, I'd watch that. That sounds good, baby. Okay, so let's talk about this genetic, biological, what's going on with the sexes. So, 99.9% .9 of people are XX or XY, okay? Where the XX people present as women and the XY present as men in that the women are producing eggs and the men are producing sperm, all of that, okay? So kind of what you think of as your typical... Sex situation in humans, 99.9%. And the way that this ends up working out is that there is a gene called the SRY gene or the SARI gene, mm. and it's on the Y chromosome, and it causes fetal testicular development. So that gene it kicks off the development of your testes while you're still in your pregnant mom's belly. And without that SRY gene, you stay female. Now... There are some percent of people that are XX or XY, but they end up with sexual characteristics that are because of non-chromosomal stuff. So they might be XX, but end up with a penis, for example. Something like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry. So about one in 1,500 or so adults have what's called a sex chromosome aneuploidy. And what that means is that they're not just XX or XY. They might be triple X. Or XYY, something like that. I saw that movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, wait, wait. Which one's uh, Vin Diesel? Yeah. Vin Diesel's Vin Diesel actually has like a whole scene where he gets some organ stuff done. <laughs> and they removed it because it was too hot for early 2000s America. Right. Ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the numbers are a little bit in contention. Sometimes you'll see them at like one in 400 or one in 1,000. But the one in 1,500 number is from like a really recent really big study of a lot of adults. And unlike a majority of people who get termed like either boy or girl or male or female, these people are often placed in categories that like the Y chromosome 
has this sorry gene and it masculinizes you as your fetus. So if you are XXY, right? You got two X's, but you still got that Y in there. Usually you end up presenting as male. I find it terrifying even just seeing the word category here. Because, like, the idea of the state exercising categories on people's sexuality is like, uh, boy, it hasn't panned out before, I tell you what. I think this comes up a little bit later, but we can bring it up now. It's not just the state, but also gender assignment surgeries. Oh, wow. Used to happen at birth. Right, right, right. Where I know that. doctors would kind of, at their discretion, if... Yeah. if they like, I don't organs, like that. <laughs> right. <Yep. laughs> if they look at the sex organ, they're like, I'm not sure... Yeah. Then they pick one or the other. Right. And then do a surgery to kind of turn that person into that, I guess, externally. Yeah. But gender reassignment surgery, extremely controversial. Yeah. Especially now. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times people who were assigned, like, for example, were XY chromosome, Mm -hmm. but were gender assigned female at birth. Right end up being transgender people or having some kind of body dysmorphia. Yeah, it drives me crazy how uh, people who are all worked up about gender right now, they don't understand that this kind of genital mutilation is what the transgender community is reacting to. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a big deal. But one thing that kind of just comes up out of that is that there's kind of this vocab issue between transgender and transsexual. Oh, What's the difference? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so it boils down to the difference between gender and sex. That makes sense. (laughs) Now I feel silly. (laughs) So people who feel like they are non-conforming to gender roles might consider themselves to, you know, previously have been considered a man, but think of their gender more as a woman or as neither, as something that doesn't really fit into any of those roles, right? That would be a transgender person. Right, or some kind of... Gender non-conforming. Okay. But transsexual, that has more to do with these things that we consider the to literal be... literal organs. Yeah, primary and secondary sexual physical characteristics. Okay. Things like... Phenotypes. Yeah, penises, balls, breasts, vaginas, all that stuff. <laughs> you excited about that? Balls. <laughs> yeah, you got going, buddy. <laughs> you couldn't help yourself. <laughs> anyway, okay, that was a big fucking digression. Right. But what I was trying to say is that... We have these XY chromosomes, but some people have extra X's, extra Y's. Cool. Right? And basically, if you toss a Y in there... (laughs) I need an extra Y. If you toss a Y in there, that means that you're going to probably develop more or less as a dude. If you are just YY, that is not viable. Yeah, you just like... It just doesn't work out. That's too bad, because that was a soul in that fetus. So... (laughs) Wow, fuck. (laughs) Oh, shit. So tell me about Turner. Tell me about Kleinfelders. Tell me about Kreutzfeldt Jakob. Oh, well, that last one doesn't work, but yeah, it said uh, XXXY, present as male, or we usually call them male with Kleinfelter syndrome, if you just have an X. Oh, oh, wait, wait, what does that mean, though? Like, what does a Kleinfelter fella look like? It's just like a dude? Yeah, yeah, so more or less, all of them kind of look like regular people. Okay. Sometimes some of them are infertile. And sometimes there are some characteristics that end up being a little bit different. So, like, in some of these aneuploides, you might have men who are more likely to develop, like, breasts, man boobs. <laughs> yeah, you don't have your shirt on, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was checking myself. We're having a moment. I think I feel a Kleinfelder lump in my, in my breast. <laughs> yeah, so Kleinfelter and Turner are actually both examples where the people are typically infertile. I actually remember Turner's from, like, school. Folks with Turner syndrome tend to be kind of short, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I think they're typically shorter. All right. But you can also be things like triple X or XYY. Ultimate. And those options uh, New don't, Zealand. don't really seem to have very many negative effects. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, they're still... That's just the same shit, basically. Yeah. And sometimes people are mosaic, right? So if you take a cell... And the M chromosome? <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if you grab cells from different parts of their body, they'll have different number of X chromosomes and stuff. That's interesting. So the most fundamental biological determinant of sex is already more complicated than it's usually made out to be. Although I guess this is in one of 1,500 people. Right. But right. of course, that still punctures a little bit of the hole in the platonic ideal of the two sexes. Right. And some people are true XXXY chimeras, which means... Sick house. <laughs> they have a goat's tail. <laughs> <laughs> so they might manifest as, you know, quote unquote, normal men or normal women or as hermaphrodites in that they might have primary sexual characteristics of both men and women. Fucking dope. It's probably rarer than one in a thousand, but it's kind of hard to know, because for some of them, they just look like normal men and women. And one of a thousand's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. We're going to Mars, baby. Usually this happens from the fusion of fraternal twins early on. What? Yeah. Dude, fuck the rest of this episode. <laughs> we have something to talk about. <laughs> okay, so, you, you know. That's so cool. Fraternal twins, they're the ones where, you know, you can have a brother and sister. Right. And so that's what happens, is if you have a brother and sister... Little little embryozygotes. But they make love in the womb. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, but the they tar- fuse. The Targaryen dynasty. <laughs> they fuse at some point. Then the resulting single child will have both male and female original cells. That's fucking wild, dude. That's so cool. Basically, there's, on top of all of this shit, where your chromosomes literally, you know, you might have extra shit, right? On top of all that, you can have people who are XY... And they have something like androgen insensitivity syndrome, which means that basically they have a hard time picking empathizing up with androids. <laughs> <laughs> they can't pick up the signal from testosterone. Okay. So they develop as female. That's cool. Wait, what, wasn't one of these on House? Wasn't there an episode of House where there's a super hot supermodel who was also having sex with her dad? This is kind of a weird, dark turn. But it turns out that she was... Technically genetically male, and the dad was like, gross. And House is like, have sex with your daughter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's like, son, I guess. And he's like, ew. <laughs> you're yeah, uh, like, man, House, ahead of its time. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think that that actually was the basis for that episode. Wow. Yeah, so these people with the androgen insensitivity syndrome typically still have the XY, but will have breasts and vaginas, clitorises. So they'll have kind of all of these other characteristics that we associate with ladies. Do they produce fertile eggs? Uh, yeah, I think well, so. Well, then they would, like, literally actually still be female I by think the gen- there might be an issue where not all of their eggs work out. Huh. Because the way that you have to have the segregation of the chromosomes, the Y doesn't work out very well. Man, we are not intelligently designed. <laughs> <laughs> but, for example, you know, another example of kind of weirdness like this is I mentioned the sorry gene earlier, right? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that kicks off the initial determination that you're going to be a dude, mm. right? So that normally hangs out on the Y chromosome, but it's a gene duplication event. So there's another gene in our body, in our DNA, that's very similar to the Sari gene. It's called SOX3. (laughs) (laughs) And SOX3, if you mutate it a little bit, it becomes pretty much like another Sari gene. Which means you can have ladies that are XX, they don't have a Sari gene around. But <laughs> SOX3 gets messed up oh. and acts like a sorry gene, so they develop as male. Wow. 
That will be a monkey's uncle. <laughs> Goddamn. So basically, there's all of these really complicated relationships, genetic situations beyond even like wholesale okay. having a Y around. But all this shit gets figured out when people are like fetuses or something. So once you're born, you're like what you are. Chromosomally is what I mean. Like once you're born, you're either XX or XY or, or any of these funky, funky, like really wild ones. But that's what it is now. I mean, I think that that is kind of one of the complicated things about the gender assignment surgeries that happen to babies. Right. It's because there is this kind of fetal development process that goes on. And then there were doctors who were kind of just making a decision about like, all right, like we're just going to switch it up all of a sudden or pick one. Hey, fuck doctors. You're the guy who's a friend with the doctor, okay? I fucking hate all <laughs> doctors, right? What I'm saying is that like gender aside, the sex, like the chromosomal sex of a person is basically determined by the time they're born, right? If they make it from fetus to a, an actual infant, they have the sex chromosomes that they're going to have for the rest of their life. It's not like they just drop off a Y or something. Oh, well, I mean, so technically in really older dudes, right, you'll sometimes just lose a Y. Right, Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's something like 20% of the dudes over the age of 60, they just pop off a Y chromosome. Oh, right, we talked like, about this in the first episode. Right. right. So, so some of that stuff Because we talked about fish, plants, and Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop harping on this. Uh, all of the animal groups, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, so it's not entirely clear what the consequences of that is. That's what made me think of, like, carbohydrates and vegetables. <laughs> like, all, all the whole food pyramid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say that there's basically two big important points of sexual development, right? It is in the fetus and then college. Puberty. Oh, okay. <laughs> Usually before college, unless you're like Doogie Hauser. Yeah. <laughs> the, the main point is that, so there's those two stages of development and things can happen before puberty that can sort of alter how that person experiences puberty. But usually you're right, by that point, they're going to have had that primary development as a fetus. Right. Although again, there are hermaphrodites, right? True hermaphrodites mm. that are yeah. born with both sets. So I guess all of that, all of that conversation was to say that there are human beings that are born with difficult classification on whatever level you want to look at it. I mean, it's difficult in as much as we're decided we have to classify things as male or female. Right, right, right. If we're trying to stick to a dichotomy, there are some people that are going to fall outside of that dichotomy. Right. And unlike categorizing things like food groups or categorizing, you know, things like animals. Vegetables! Right. These are human beings, and human right. beings have feelings, and so when we decide that we're just going to start categorizing people into, you know, different spots, it matters a lot. I mean, that doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter to Jordan Peterson, who says feelings, <laughs> are, feelings are gay, or Stephen Miller, who says feelings are in Spanish, <laughs> so I just, like, need to get out of here. <laughs> like, good wasps don't believe in feelings, Sean. <laughs> All I'm saying is that our desire to categorize everything and our love of dichotomies... Right. I think that butts up against the fact that human beings are not that simple. So I think Tao's philosophy is smart. Tell me. The Taoist and Confucian argument was about the use of classifications. Confucians thought that classifications successfully structure thought, which is accurate. And the Taoists thought that in as much as classifications structure thought, they can divorce human thought away from empirical reality, right? Like the, mm. the world defied classifications often, and classifications would distract your mind from whatever truths were out there. Yeah, man, those ancient Chinese dudes, they were saying some words. I actually think it's a shame how much stupid ass shit 
is like promoted as being Eastern because like I think actually the groundwork philosophies are actually quite perceptive. Yeah, that's solid. All right, let's take a break. And then after the break, we're going to get into the topic of sexual dimorphism. My name is Tyler Jerry, and I'm here with Petri Dish contributor Donatello Iglesias. Hey guys, and if you're like me, you can't stop thinking about booties and bare naked thighs and in warm milk, and you're wondering, maybe I'm not a sick pervert, maybe I'm just predisposed towards liking those things because, well, evolution. Well, we need sick doggies like Donna here for the Petri Dish Evolutionary Psychology Research Center. We'll hook you, lab rats, up to electrodes, and you'll help answer today's hottest questions in human evolutionary sexuality, like, why do men like big butts? But why didn't they like them in the 1980s? Is foot-fucking really the most fun? Are Neanderthal genes the reason Europeans act the way they do? How was Woody Allen ever a sex symbol? Is doggy style called that because we saw dogs doing it? Or because we tried it on dogs first? All these questions and more we'll answer with the hard-hitting field of evolutionary psychology. So, s- sign up as a guinea pig. Let us poke and prod you. It's all for Sex Science Today. Okay, we're back. <laughs> So let's go ahead and hit up this topic, sexual dimorphism. Nathan, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, because I used to have an orchid mantis, and male orchid mantises are tiny, and so we really hoped we had a female one because it would be big, and that's an example of sexual dimorphism in terms of phenotype, right? Is that like, phenotype being the expressed quality of a gene, female pregnantises tend to be bigger. They are sexual dimorphic. Right, so I think we all have a much easier time talking about sexual dimorphism when we're talking about animals. You can say like, oh, well, male peacocks versus female peacocks, they obviously look different. Right, right. whereas male humans, the fact that they're stronger and more intelligent is controversial. (laughs) 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 Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. So this is where it gets dicey. Right. All right, because, first of all, a lot of animals do have sexual dimorphism. Some animals don't. Some animals, right. the males and females, are pretty much not distinguishable from each other. What's a good example? There's a lot of birds, actually. Uh-huh. There's a good number of birds where the males and females are pretty much indistinguishable in terms of markings. I was once in the mud with a couple of birds in the 60s. And <laughs> you couldn't tell who was male or female there. <laughs> Just grabbing whatever was around. <laughs> hey, <Yeah>. bud. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I think one thing that's true is that there are biological differences between what we'll call, if we have to categorize into the dichotomy of male and female, there are some biological differences. Fascist! (laughs) Okay, yeah. But one of the things is that a lot of times people use that information as a way to try to reinforce some kind of role or position they think people should be in because of that. Right, the key difference being between sex and gender, gender being a construct, and sex. But what's a good example of, like, uh, some way that male and female humans exhibit sexual dimorphism. Yeah, men on average are taller. Okay. And so if there's some kind of job that's like, you need to reach tall things, right? then you could imagine there being a thing where people are like, oh, well, on average, dudes are taller than ladies, so we should make this just a dude job or something. Right, and and that's the problem is now you've let an average create a category of work, and then you've excluded a whole group of people some of whom will be tall, right? Like some women are tall and are probably capable of doing that work, even if on average... 
men are taller. Right, yeah. So that's the thing is that a lot of these, when you reduce things down to averages, you kind of take away the fact that these are distributions. And in some of these cases, these distributions are close enough that there's significant overlap between them. Right. It would be like if on average, food will not kill you. But on occasion, some food kills you. (laughs) But instead, you just take the average of truth and you're like, oh, well, then that food doesn't kill you. It's like, dude, some food kills you, bro. Yeah, and I will say that this entire topic, sexual dimorphism, in its very name kind of encodes the majoritarian view. Like the die. Yeah, that there is just male and female and it excludes intersex people. When really it's like sexual LGBTQ... A morphism. (laughs) It's the whole rainbow. It's rainbow morphism. (laughs) Right, yeah. So many morphs. And I will say that whatever the physical dimorphic kind of characteristics are between males and females, they do get filtered through our cultural kind of gender glasses. I mean, that's what's so difficult about the conversation. Right, yeah. And so I will say that compared to other primates, humans actually have less size dimorphism. Really? So chimps, gorillas, baboons, they typically have a larger difference between males and females in terms of size. Yeah, so... But that's interesting. So, uh, yeah, less sexual dimorphism than other primates. There's a lot of different dimorphisms between males and females. For example, immune cell activity. Women have... We're uh, talking humans again. Yeah, in humans. Women have more active immune systems than men. That makes sense. Well, this is where we get into dangerous territories. What I was going to say is that makes sense because women got the important junk and need to make babies. But that would be extrapolation based on something that's unprovable, isn't it? Because that would be like an evolutionary assumption about a data point. Right. So that is kind of like a Evo Devo evolutionary what, is that, development. Is that an album? Like <laughs> <laughs> it's Evo Devo. It's like a <laughs> evolutionary development mm. is the idea that like the developmental origins of certain traits or something, you can figure out evolutionarily why they happen. It's right. like answering the why question to evolution. But it's kind of suspect because science is not very good for whys in general. It's just hard. Yeah. Right. There, there are That's some what religion things, is for. And there, God. There are, <laughs> there are some things where scientists, I think, have been pretty convincing about it. And there are, there are some reasonable theories as to why women have stronger immune systems. Like what you were saying, I right. think that's a reasonable hypothesis. Right. But I don't think it's proven. Right. But it is definitely the case that on average, women's immune systems are more active. It's one of the reasons why a lot of autoimmune disorders are more prevalent in women. Mm. Males uh, have differences in skeletal muscle gain, on average, and there can be different sized structures in the brain. Okay, so this is dicey. <laughs> yeah, so... so Stephen Fry perked up. <laughs> <laughs> so the difference that I was thinking of okay. is that in the olfactory bulb, so sort of the thing that kind of integrates a lot of the smell information, women have more neurons and uh, glial cells than men do. But, and I know this is a fact... I have a thicker brainstem than Stacy. <laughs> oh yeah, you're thicker. <laughs> Wine, food, food, breathe. Remember to breathe. <laughs> My brainstem just has to work harder <laughs> to keep me alive. <laughs> Look, something that will come up inevitably out there is the question of dimorphism in behavior and cognition. Okay? Oh yeah, that's scary. And I don't want to fucking talk about it. Yeah, because cognition. <laughs> I mean, to to desciency that word. That's like, do men and women on like a biological level, think differently is basically what that asks, right? Right, yeah. Well, that's dicey. Right. Because so much of how we think is constructed. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And there are tests, you know what I mean, that'll come out and it'll be like, oh, boys are better at math and girls are better at reading or something. <laughs> and it's like, oh, fuck. You know what I mean? Like, how are you supposed to disentangle that kind of situation? And like, it's so funny because like, I feel like 90% of the people who read that 
Like, if they're guys. Right? Like, I read that study, and I'm like, well, that can't be right, because I'm, like, definitely the worst person in math. <laughs> and I'm male. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, and I feel like a lot of the guys who read that are like, yeah, men are smarter at math. They're also bad at math, personally, so, like, fuck those guys. Like, they don't know how to add two things together to make the tip and the total. <laughs> so one of the most recent studies that came out about that found that boys and girls test about the same. But guys are more arrogant about it, right? Well, what they found was that the girls were more consistent about it, oh, whereas huh. boys actually had more variation. There were more boys that were really shitty at a subject and more boys that were really good at a subject. That's interesting. So their averages ended up being similar, but there were more outliers for the boys. Huh. Which, I that's, don't know what that's about either. Well, I mean, that's one of those, this is the scary thing about that kind of reported study, is that, to me, that immediately makes sense, because I'm like, oh, I know a lot of idiot guys, and, and then there's Einstein every once in a while. <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a minute, that really is still kowtowing to gendered assumptions. Right. Very difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. So what I would say is that I, I don't think that there's a big enough difference in behavior and cognition. And all these quote-unquote empirical studies are happening within the society we're trying to analyze. It's total bullshit. Absolutely. That is, I think, the crux of it is that once you add in the societal layer, and like, I don't know, fucking families and shit, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's The scientists, too, too, are like part of it as well. <laughs> right. That's too much extra shit on top of the biology. Now you're just talking about a totally different thing. If you had Dr. Manhattan doing this study, then we're like, now we're cooking with canola. <laughs> but like, Joe McFuck, you know, like Stanford labs, like, I'll trust, like, I don't even like Stanford. Yeah. Too many groundhogs. All right. So let's take a break here, and then after the break... We're going to get into, I think, the science-wise, the most tenuous territory. But also episode. kind of the more most pop science, the most reported element of human sexuality. Questions like, do men like big butts? Does makeup exist for evolutionary reasons? Right, right, yeah. Not only do men like big butts, but why? Right. Evolutionarily. Right. That's what we're going to get into after this break. Okay, guys, we're back at Petri Dish, and we're going to venture into a subject that I think is simultaneously the most popular element of scientific research on sexuality and the most controversial within the actual scientific community. It's a field called evolutionary psychology, which in this particular case tries to answer the why of oftentimes very specific questions on human sexuality. It's kind of the backstory about this episode. We had always wanted to talk about sex, but I had a friend who is a listener of the pod email me some articles and ask for our opinion on it. I'm going to read you some of those article names. Happy guys finish last, says new study on sexual attractiveness. Scientists discover evolutionary advantage for homosexuality. Why are men attracted to women who wear makeup? And finally, baby got back. Male preference for curved spines may explain why they love big butts. You guys have probably seen a lot of articles like that as you've just scrolled through whatever. I know my computer's inundated with them for some reason. <laughs> and, I, you know, those are the sort of things that I'm interested about, too. I send them to Sean. Sean's response is like, fuck science. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and it was an interesting process, us talking about this subject. So, Sean, tell me the answer. I mean, first of all, I'm really curious. Happy guys finish last. Why? <laughs> okay so all of these articles all of these topics they got me kind of hot the which is hard because he's already a very good looking man so he was just like he literally touched a person on his way into the bus and that person just caught in flames he's so hot anger 
<laughs> these, these topics get me mad because coming into this, I did not think very much of evolutionary psychology. Sean, like, being a hard scientist is all about genes and shit like that. Like, I don't like to throw shade on other fields in science, but... Well, everyone does on this one, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, it's just when articles do come out, like male preference for curved spines may explain why they have big butts, I always look at that as a answer to a why question. And I just really think science is terrible at that. So mm. I always wonder fundamentally what made those scientists think they could even begin to answer that. Sure, question. science can identify empirical realities. Why they exist is a much more difficult, sometimes even metaphysical question. Right. You so, must ask God why people prefer big butts. <laughs> and in fact, the premise is faulty in the entire nation of Britain. <laughs> right? Like, they seem to still exist. So, before I tear into evolutionary psychology, we should Ooh, define it first. So you penetrate it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so what evolutionary psychology is, it's the application of evolutionary theory to understanding the basis of psychological behaviors and traits. I already see how this is fraught. You don't believe in psychology. <laughs> well, it's just you're using concepts like natural and sexual selection of different traits. Which are real. Then, right. Yeah. yeah. yeah evolution. <laughs> genes um, are real. And the behind the scenes genes that relate to those external traits right it's just in this case the external traits you're talking about are things like preferring an hourglass shape or something these behavioral traits that are pretty far detached from the genes behind them right it's okay. hard to see the weeds from the forest in terms of sex and gender in terms of what's a construct and what is actually related to a phenotype and a gene somewhere right and sort of implicit in some of these things in evolution is that your certain genes are being picked because they're advantageous. Right. And somewhere there's some set of genes that have to do with what your body shape is. Some probably large set of genes. Right. Whether our brains evolved to figure out that there are genes behind that shape and select those genes sounds like a tenuous connection to me. Right. I can barely remember what I did last night. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone what gene so, Stacey's expressing when she's wearing makeup. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... We evolved in a certain environment, and the idea here in evolutionary psychology is we evolved in a relatively constant environment a long, long time ago. Africa. That's maybe different than the environment we're in now. Right. The city. And that the gene complexes that help determine behavior are very interconnected and slow to change. And so what the brain does is it kind of creates these different modules that work together for rapid adaptability. So this is kind of like the fundamental underpinnings of evolutionary psychology. That's cool. And a lot of those things are no longer thought to be true. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at its very basis, for example, some gene complexes are known to evolve very quickly. Yeah, and, in fact, genetics in general is like actually a much, much more adaptable than was previously assumed, right? Right. And... The interacting module theory of behavior yeah, is no fucking longer... Fucking clownfish can just turn into <laughs> women all of a sudden. <laughs> so there's a lot of issues with that very fundamental idea. Right. But I read through some articles. I will say that as a field, evolutionary psychologists write a lot of articles defending themselves. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. It was so funny when I sent the articles to Sean because he like basically texted me back and was like, burn them all. <laughs> and Sean, to his credit, a very introspective, sensitive man, reads a lot of Walt Whitman. He was like, well, why do I feel so much anger over what might be esoteric? Although, I mean, that's really what makes you angry is that it's not esoteric. This is like the forefront of science for some people. Right. But so he looked into it and read a lot of these articles. 
Yeah. Tell us about that. So, yes. So I read these defenses of evolutionary psychology, and I found some things to be... Um, some things to be convincing and some things not. So one of the common critiques leveled against evolutionary psychology is that they have shitty hypotheses and untestable claims. Right. And I guess the truth of it in these articles is that at least some of their hypotheses have been testable. Okay. In that there are some things, behaviors that do appear to be kind of conserved through evolution. Yeah. Okay? So one of those examples is an evolutionary selected fear of snakes. So primates, kind of across the board, if they see something that is snake-shaped, they will react to that snake even if they've never actually encountered a real snake. It's interesting. This is kind of like, I mean, cats are not primates, but it's like you throw a cucumber at a cat. It's like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fucking yeah. freaks out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> S- snake shapes are the cucumbers to primates. That's um, funny. So the idea there, that that's not a sexual behavior, okay? But that right. is a behavioral reaction that's kind of ingrained in us because, evolutionarily speaking, snakes, which are often in trees, right. and our primate ancestors, which were also in trees, would often kind of butt up against each other. They were dangerous to us. So how do you test that? Right. So what they were able to do is they were able to take both people and primates that had never actually encountered a snake before. Who so the have, fuck is that person? What? In Indiana Jones, there's snakes everywhere, right? It's like all over pop culture. <laughs> there I feel are like. kids that haven't run into snakes yet. Okay, okay, fine. Maybe some children, some ignorant ass kids, <laughs> <laughs> haven't seen a snake. So what? They just like, just like 100% of ignorant monkeys and kids just like freak out when they see something slithering? They react to it more strongly and with more aversion than other kinds of shapes. But and what's their S? Isn't there, like, a thing in statistics where, like, an S value has to oh, be... Oh, a P value. A P value, my bad. What's, <laughs> what's the S? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a good P. <laughs> for that study, uh, I don't know how low of a P value they went to. Yeah. Although, P values are something that I'm going to be bringing up in a few minutes as one of my critiques. Okay. And real quick, yeah, this is a bit of a digression, guys. Excuse me for this. Yeah. I fucking hate it when people are like... First of all, when people are like, what house are you in Harry Potter? Because, like, get over it. But then also <laughs> when people are like, I'm Slytherin. It's like, dude, Slytherins are bad. You're saying you're a sociopath, and they're like, no, man, it means I'm cunning. And you're like, that's still bad. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, that doesn't just mean smart. It means you're a son of a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. God, do you know that shit about, it's called the dark triad of behavioral traits? No, actually, I don't. It's like some kind of thing like being a sociopath and like uh, being a narcissist. And these like what you'd call negative qualities. Yeah. And then that there have been some studies that were like, oh, wow. 100% 100% of CEOs are evil. <laughs> you know, and, that, and that it spurned this entire pulp culture kind of faux research being like, oh, maybe to be successful in the business world, you need right. to have these traits, right? The that, great like, pirate theory of capitalism. Right, like these are the reason why we keep narcissism around is because it makes you a good CEO or some kind of thing. This would right? be a classic example of evolutionary psychology that makes you absolutely apeshit. Yes. First of all, the dark triad original behavioral study is... At least moderately flawed. It was like some Stanford study where they're like, three guys, like, hit each other. (laughs) Right. Right. And here's the other thing is that, like, based on that test, at least some of the CEOs that are testing as, like, a sociopath or something, they're just an asshole. Okay? They're just a regular asshole. They don't have to be, like, a fucking sociopath. Milk toast, Mel Gibson, and what do women want? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Sometimes people are dicks, okay? We don't need to go full-blown say that they're a sociopath. God, I hate Stanford. I think sometimes some of the stuff is really challenging for them to... 
legitimately look into, okay? Because it's hard to know if the hypothesis you're making is actually unfalsifiable or not. Right. Like sometimes you'll end up kind of putting the cart before the horse, right? Mm. So you'll see circumstances where people are fighting a lot. Or yeah, I mean, even outside of people, animals are like fighting a lot in yeah. nature. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's like because they're trying to selfishly pass on their own genes, right? Like mm. this is how evolution works: is fighting and battling it out, right? right. And then you know, <laughs> some objectivist day, masturbates in the corner. Well, the next day you'll see like some example of animals working together, and you'll be like, oh, they're collectively working together to pass on their genes, and this is the way that evolution works: is right. they, they work together and band together so they can all succeed. Right. It's like, well, which one is it, motherfucker? Okay, what are you saying? <laughs> yeah. And the reality is that like, if you're just going based off of observing people choosing something, right, or acting some kind of way, and then retrofitting some kind of explanation onto that, right, what is your actual explanatory power? Right. What, what, what was the benefit of coming up with that answer, right? Your pattern recognizing yourself into something that is unfalsifiable. Right. And I think that happens sometimes in some evolutionary psychology. And then other times they'll test something and they'll think that they tested their hypothesis. For example, there was a study where they tested to see whether males and females felt the same or differently about infidelity. Okay. Because evolutionarily speaking for human beings, just because of the way that birth works, females know that the child that they birthed is theirs. Right, okay. So hypothetically, you could imagine if you wanted to some kind of situation where males would want some kind of way of verifying or knowing, or they might be more cautious about their parentage or something, if it's so important to them that they pass on their genes. Right. So with that hypothesis that it matters more to males than females, they kind of asked these questions to guys about how they felt about infidelity okay and what it did to them emotionally and so when they did this study they found like oh men do seem to be more concerned they get more worked up about the question of fidelity than women do in that they were reacting more emotionally to the questions it varied a little bit by culture so not every culture had men who felt the same kind of way yeah but also they didn't just care about physical fidelity like the idea of their spouse having sex with another person. Right. They also cared about emotional fidelity. Right, which is entirely besides the point. Right. And in fact, in a lot of metrics, the men cared way more about emotional fidelity than physical fidelity. That like when posed the question, what hurts you more? What are you more bothered by? The idea of emotional cheating or physical cheating. Emotional cheating won most of the time. So this entire test about connecting emotions to the question of fidelity kind of fundamentally wasn't really looking at exactly the question that they were asking in the first place. Right. And it was still asking a question. It was still a test. There's still data. And I think that all of that is valid. Mm. But you need to be really careful when you design experiments. Right. That you're actually interrogating what you're saying. How did they design the experiment for any of the articles I mentioned? Like, let's say men liking bigger butts. How do you design an experiment for that? Oh, yeah. They did not design an experiment for that. Oh. That was based off of a biomechanical study. That suggested that basically spine curvature and what that does physically to a woman's positioning of her uterus can make it so that childbirth can be a little bit easier. If basically the spine curves in such a way that would kind of push her butt out more. And it's entirely just an errant supposition inside the article that said maybe. It was basically bringing together two ideas, which is like, oh, don't dudes like big butts? <laughs> There's that song, right? Again, Sweden exists. Right? <laughs> and, then, and then the other idea was like, oh, well, women being able to go through childbirth easier would be evolutionarily a good thing. Right. So they're like, this is it. This is easy as shit. Just connect the dots, bro. Right. right? Guys like big butts. 
girls with butts poking out can give childbirth easier. But presumably in science, you're not supposed to just connect dots. That's like... You really bibli- shouldn't. That's yeah. like a biblical exegesis is for or something. Right. So I think what happened ultimately was one of the scientists that did the study on the biomechanics said something along the lines of, you could imagine that <laughs> this could be related right. to, you know, why guys like big butts, right? And then, and the then and science then journalist like, is like, whoa, nailed it, right? Like editors I'm, everywhere. I'm getting clicks. <laughs> okay, well, how about men are being attracted to women who wear makeup? What kind of study was even there? Right, so, I mean, this again is sort of a relating of an idea that in periods of sexual arousal there are certain kind of biological features like flushing in the face and stuff like that, right? Lips reddening, the area around your eyes getting darker because of increased blood flow. Yeah. Okay. And so... My taint. My taint gets red. (laughs) And slippery. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why when you want to be, you know, sexy, you put a little blush down there. Yeah, Right? So that the ladies know... You're ready to go, right? (laughs) I'm like an animal. That's how I signal I'm ready for sex. Right. This is connecting those ideas. Okay. It's like, okay, well, makeup a lot of times looks like those kinds of things. Right. Like applying blush or eyeshadow. What about geishas? They do the opposite. They're like (laughs) Cracker Jacks. They're so white. Yeah, and they blacken their teeth, which is a classic sign of being horny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so that sounds silly too. So how about so the other two articles we got sent was Happy Guys Finish Last and The Evolutionary Advantage for Homosexuality. How about those? Did those have a specific study or were those also just connecting dots? Well, <laughs> so the evolutionary advantage for homosexuality one. Proven. <laughs> <laughs> it's attempting to kind of turn the tables on the common trope, which is actually one of the big questions in evolutionary psychology that they haven't been able to figure out exactly. Which doesn't is, sound like they figured out anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, it's one of the outstanding questions within their field, oh, okay. which is like, why would homosexuality have evolved? Because it doesn't really mm, improve the odds of being able to pass on your genes. Right? Gay guys can totally breed too. <laughs> well, I, but it's a hindrance if you're not sexually attracted Right? Yes, like kind of not. I mean, I know plenty of homosexual people who have had a child at some point, and not just through insemination. Like, the first wife was like a woman, and they just made it work, and then, and then had a kid. And I don't know, like the whole society of ancient Greece, like successfully was gay, and like had, see, had kids. Yeah, that's great. That What you're getting at is, I think, definitely true, which is that entire question of like, why would homosexuality is like a weird Victorian Protestant it's, bullshit question. It is itself, yeah. It's been turned that way because of society. When it's framed another way, which is if you look out into the animal world, animals will bang all kinds of stuff. It turns out there's not that much cost to you jizzing on almost anything. Right. Okay. Whether or not you could have actually procreated with it. Right. You're not expending like a month's ATP jizzing once. Right. That's one of the reasons why you see monkeys raping deer, right? Like you... What? Wait, you didn't know about this? You said that too loud and (laughs) and impassioned. I need to understand a little bit more about that. I think it's Japanese monkeys, maybe? So, if you look out there, you'll you'll see animals engaging in... All sorts of superfluous, useless sexual acts. Including monkeys having sex with deer. Yeah, and masturbation, and fish having sex with other fish species that they literally can't make babies with. Sure. Clearly... There's plenty of sexual acts that don't have anything to do with evolution. At least they don't have a clear link that is very provable. Right, that not every sexual act directly leads to procreation in the animal kingdom. And so that intrinsic attempt to link the two 
and then get confused about homosexuality is stupid. Yeah, it's stupid <laughs> and biased. It's, yeah. it's based off of social mores. Okay, well, how about how about how about this last one? Happy guys finish last because this is a stereotype too, right? Like, last guys finish last. Yeah, so I mean, the basis of the study was it was like a ranking of attractiveness based off of whether the guy was like smiling or brooding. Sure, I can kind of see where. Yeah, and it was just like, oh well, you know, the smiley guys didn't score as well as the broody guys, right? And so you know, and then there's kind of some sort of supposition as to like, well, evolutionarily speaking, the broody guys. We're more likely to kill something. Or food, or, you know, like, whatever. Like it's it's okay. that next step. It's the why, right? That it's always like, it kind of falls apart a little bit. Right. There's all kinds of studies you could do on any small or any group of people yeah. to try to find some kind of connection. Yeah. It's the why question that really bothers me. Okay. So, yeah. You have these hypotheses and everything. And I want to say that even in the studies where I think they're well-constructed, okay, and mm. they're a good hypothesis. Like this snake guy. Yeah. yeah. In some cases, the results that come back, they're statistically significant to a p-value of like a little under 0.05. And, you know, out there in the biology world, 0.05 is sort of the threshold for whether you want to call something legit or not, statistics-wise. Right. Okay? But there's been a lot of pushback from the statistics community. The very angry group of people. Yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> and 2016, right? Like, those guys didn't do their jobs right. <laughs> they feel like there's an over-reliance on p-values as sort of a judgment for whether something is true or not. Yeah. That like as soon as you cross this, what is ultimately arbitrary threshold right. of 0.05, all of a sudden something goes from being bullshit to true. Okay, that actually sounds like a pretty valid criticism. Right, and so that that is a criticism that I will level to pretty much all of biology. It's okay? sure. It just happens that we're applying it to a field that is uniquely bullshit. <laughs> well, that has a lot of these issues in that they'll barely cross the line and then... The main thing is that when you make big claims, your evidence needs to be strong. That's right. the thing. Right. Right. And so these big claims about behaviors, I feel like you need really strong evidence. All so right. maybe we should take a break. That was a woo. That was a lot of, lot of pooping on a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> when that monkey's raped deer and, and, and other things, I guess. I'm still getting over that one. So we're going to take that break. And after that, we're going to talk about another sexy big old term, biological determinism. What is actually determined by your biology? The following is an actual advertisement. Oh my god, I know words. Yeah, I love etymology! Spooky-ooky. Murderer. Double murders. Zombies. Horror is always political. Mm -hmm. I don't like that at all. Hi, I'm Alex, and I'm a creep. And I'm Sunshine, her creep-enabling best friend. Together we tackle all things horror. History, politics, science, and sociology. From zombies to serial killers. Pomegranates and Pitchforks is a horror and true crime podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. Guys, we're back, okay? Sean has a couple more criticisms to throw <laughs> at this dog-shit field that combines one of the most dog-shit field psychology with one of the most dog-shit ideas in history, evolution. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Just kidding. But anyway, so Sean, so you have a couple more critiques. Uh, what are they? Okay, so one of them is on the topic of biological determinism. Okay, and a lot of times, I don't know if that phrase means anything to you guys. Big. It's basically the question of nature versus nurture, all right? And what I will say is, based off of reassurances from many of these papers I read from evolutionary psychologists, most of them have a nuanced view of nature versus nurture. Well, so just to summarize that, the idea here, and it's kind of an old philosophical debate, 
is are you or as any individual person the way they are because they were raised or nurtured that way or because it is intrinsic somehow to their nature, presumably in their genetic nature now? Right. So the question is, for any particular behavior, would you say that it's mostly determined by your evolutionary history or by sort of being informed and shaped by your lived experience? Right. Is Daenerys Targaryen a tyrant in the manner that she is because she's been nurtured that way or because it is intrinsic to Targaryen blood and genetics yeah. that she would go crazy at some point. Yeah, exactly. Or did the writers really just want to go make something else <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They were done! <laughs> um, okay, so what the defense has been from evolutionary psychologists is that they have a nuanced view on that, which is that most behaviors are a mix okay. of an evolutionary history that's encoded in your genes and then also sort of all this information that you're integrating from your environment, okay? That said, there are a fucking huge number of examples, published examples, of evolutionary psychologists talking about their work in deterministic terms that we act like this because, evolutionarily speaking, that. Okay. So, to use an example that's not entirely fair to the article itself, but uh, an example would be like, we prefer big butts, Definitely because it helps pass down genes. It increases the fertility of a woman, like the, the biological shape of their booty. Right, as opposed to, like, let's say, culture, where some cultures definitely are, like, way super into big butts, and then not consider yeah, any household. other aspects. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the scientific paper that Pop Sci article was written about doesn't really go into that, right? Right. But there were a set of papers written about trigger warning rape and they suggest that it's an evolved behavior that kind of persists in men because it helps spread their gene around to fertile women because of what rape is now what are the scientists like who publish these papers they're like old white dudes <laughs> this hypothesis this theory and you know all the papers about it they're dog shit they're terrible papers. The science is really bad. It doesn't hold up to evidence about the prevalence of rape, the likelihood of generating offspring that way. Plenty right. of animals don't rape at all. The power and domination dynamics that kind of spur rape. It's like a cultural level dynamic. So on the ground level of empiricism, what makes it bad science? Is it that like they didn't really actually design a study? It's a lot of supposition. It's mm. a lot of correlation between ideas and then a lot of naturalistic determinism where they're like look at how some animals rape right, right. like animals don't have culture but they be raping so like right. there must be a genetic reason right. right but there's a lot of animals that don't right okay that argument that it becomes fixated in a species genetically because it has this intrinsic value it's fixated in 4chan is where it's fixated well the issue is that like seriously when you bring up this topic with like the scientists who came up with it they'd be like you're just getting mad because rape is bad which it is but we're just talking about genes, dude. Like, no judgments. We're just observing what's out there. Right. And like, okay. You're observing poorly. <laughs> yeah. You also <laughs> did a bad job. Like, that's just, you did not do a good job. And part of the reason why these articles, it's controversial, but also it got written about a lot. Yeah. Right? There was a lot written about this topic in Pop Psy. A lot of people picked this up. And in evolutionary psychology, you'll read a lot about males and females and this dichotomy. And then you'll also talk about gender roles being connected to their genetic background. Which is annoying because we just spent a lot of time talking about how the genetics of you know, of these human genders is 
Right. Super complicated. Exactly. Gender is what we layer on top of a very complicated sexuality. Right. So in these frameworks that come up a lot in evolutionary psychology, they don't leave a lot of space for in between the dichotomy of male and female. So I think that they're going to have to figure that shit out. Okay. I have other critiques. Nice. (laughs) I think that um, this is one that is probably the one that I feel the most is one of the reasons why I get so angry at evolutionary psychology is because I feel like it naturally lends itself toward a naturalistic moralism. Right. An idea that like what exists in nature is right. Whatever maximizes the passing down of genes is also intrinsically moral. Right. That there's a moral value and weight to the idea of whatever evolutionarily was, you know, maximized or selected for. Which is already on its premise, stupid. Right. And also, like, realistically, there are a lot of different kinds of evolutionary psychologists out there. A lot of them, if you ask them, do you think, like, what you study has anything to do with morality? Right. They'd be like, fuck no. Right. Like, super no, please no. Right. But it's almost, I mean, the reason they're defensive is because it's kind of baked into their discipline by virtue of its emergence out of eugenics and Nazism. Yes. And... And also one of my, kind of the basis of my revulsion for this discipline (laughs) is because it makes me think about Nazis and stuff like that, right? (laughs) Is like once they're like, oh, well, you know, I mean, evolutionarily speaking, this hair color is better. Right. You're, I was about to make that joke, actually. Then it's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) So, you know, anyway, that's one of my concerns. And then lastly, um, I think evolutionary psychology has this kind of really big mechanistic black box sitting there and it's because behavior comes out of the brain and the brain is still largely a black box neuroscientists are working really hard on it but went down somewhere outside malaysia (laughs) can't find it (laughs) trying to dredge it up (laughs) guys who find it like zoolander hitting it with hammers being like what's in this black box (laughs) (laughs) but yeah look man okay evolution works on genes right And then way on the other side of your whole fucking brain working is behavior. And in between, there's like... The actual mechanics of how that even relates. Yeah. It's a box full of cats, right? It's just like a fucking mess in there. Okay? And evolutionary psychologists are trying to say things about stuff on both ends and then not be able to say anything about stuff in the middle. Sure. Trying to get away with it. Well, it's just, I think you're going to have to end up being a lot less confident about what you say if you can't say anything about what's in the middle. Right. So give me an example of what you mean. Okay, so if we are talking about uh, evolutionary benefit to the preference of butt size. Yeah. Okay? And in that biomechanics paper, they were suggesting that butt size is kind of about it poking out because of spine curvature. How your spine curves, like what set of genes makes your spine curve a certain way, that's like fucking complicated. Sure. There's a lot of genes that are working together. Right. And each individual gene, how much that contributes to how much your butt sticks out is like a kind of small percent. And then there's the epigenetics of it, right? About like how those genes are even expressed, even if you have certain genes. Right, and the interaction with your environment. Did you get a back brace for your scoliosis? Right, like the- you eat a lot of tofu? <laughs> <laughs> get so some rhino horn? There's all this extra shit on top of those genes, right. and that's just on the body side, not to mention your behavior side when you see that. Book. Right. Then it's definitely a black box what the male mind thinks when it sees the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the relationship is so complex between the phenotype that we're talking about, the behavior, and the actual genetic selection. Right. The actual competition between these gene alleles. So I think that it means that pretty much everything that comes out of that should not be as confidently asserted. 
So you, you kind of said in the course of this that there are plenty of evolutionary psychologists who seem like they're trying to do good work. And yet what we end up reading is stuff that, I mean, in their defense, often misrepresents their work. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's one of the things is that I'm glad that you <laughs> made me do this episode because <laughs> Sean doesn't want to talk about sex. <laughs> I the when you sent me those articles, I was like, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> but I'm glad that I read the defenses of evolutionary psychology because I think what it really drove home is that at some point there is a communications disconnect. Right. And a lot of scientists are terrible communicators, or that's just not their job. Someone else is doing it, and how they represent the work sometimes isn't good. Right. So the SciComm community out there would Do increase... those people, like, blow up brains from a distance with their brain? Yeah, scientific communicators community out there. I would say that they largely consider that it should be a scientist's job to accurately convey their information to people like journalists. Right. And I think that it is a little challenging, right. okay? Because first of all, scientists, you're right, a lot of them are not trained in ways to effectively communicate. Even just writing, right? Like the vernacular right. is so different between common vernacular and scientific literature. Right. And in the process of wanting to make science more accessible, there's also a desire to make science more exciting, right? right? To say things like, you could imagine that, right? And then you make a connection that you wouldn't write in a paper right. because it's not founded, right. but it's hot. Yeah. And, you know, you could logically think like, hey, maybe, right? Sure. It's like the very beginnings of a hypothesis. Right. In, in, in common writing, you're allowed to make basically pre-scientific philosophical connections. It's entirely allowed. But right. in science, it's verboten to make connections that is not actually what you studied. Right. And at the end of the day, a lot of those sentences are some of the most exciting that journalists have to work with. And so those journalists, the people writing the pop sci articles, will write an article that I think covers a lot of true things about the original journal article. Right. But will also kind of pepper in some of that supposition. Some connections and patterns that they recognize. Yeah. Like what gets more clicks, and to be even less cynical about it, like what helps expose a subject. Right. Is it going to be the article about the curvature of the spine, or is it going to be the article about ass? And then the next level is the reader, right? And the reader can read that article, and maybe the article itself might make a connection that's a little tenuous, but doesn't make any kind of moral judgments. But then you go hop on 4chan, right? boom, well, <laughs> headshot. We make moral judgments. Right. And so we can get information in and be like, oh, well, if Blue Eyes is connected to this kind of behavior, then maybe, you know, blue-eyed people shouldn't work at restaurants. We're thinking like, 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 we'll start to make weird connections ourselves internally. So, you know, to wrap up this screed, okay? <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that in all of these evolutionary psychology topics, I think the researchers are probably going to continue trying their best to govern themselves by scientific principles, and they need to continue working hard to engage journalists on some kind of level that accurately conveys their results. But then you people, <laughs> yeah. as you're reading articles that are like, why people, some kind of behavior, evolution. Anytime you see any of those topics, I want you to take a second and not apply that to some kind of moral thing. Right. Okay. Even if something is connected biologically to some kind of evolution thing, that does not mean that it's right or good. Right. Okay. And so if we can detach that, then I think that would make a lot of these articles less painful for me. Mm. 
Well, guys, if you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> you know, we talk a lot of hot booty stuff, and you know, Sean got real hot in this episode, which is really <laughs> sexy. Uh, so I hope you made it. <laughs> <laughs> we want to thank you, the listener. But we want to thank Stacy Song, our sound lord and engineer, Brian Allen for doing the art. Yeah, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Petri Dish. We have a Gmail at PetriDishPod at gmail.com and a Twitter at Dish Podcast. Sean's up on Reddit, Ask Me Science Anything as Alpha MHC. Yeah, Alpha MHC. Hit them up, guys, if you just want to, you're just real mad. <laughs> you know, you hit you hit this guy up. You hit him, all right? <laughs> Thank you for listening, folks. Ich bin ein Sex. <laughs> Thank you.